You can be seated. If you'll get your Bibles out this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, if you'll raise your hand, we'll get you one. Anybody need a Bible? Just raise your hand and we'll get you one. Jeff, right up there in the balcony, right, right there. In the... Anybody else? I grew up in a traditional church that didn't offer a kids' ministry during the adult worship. This meant that my brother and I were trapped and tortured by boredom. You know, it's tough for a couple of rowdy, squirmy, fidgety little boys to sit motionless for over an hour in our starched white shirts and our clip-on ties. It was tough. The fresh air and the red mud were calling my name. It's no wonder both my brother and I are now pastors that offer engaging children's ministry during the Sunday morning service. I think part of my calling is to make church fun for little boys. But my dad deserves a lot of credit. He saw the problem that his boys were having with church, and he came to our rescue. This was before Game Boys and smartphones, so he would come on Sundays armed with paper and pencils, and we'd play Connect the Dots. I don't recall the details of the game, but it sure helped beat the boredom. And here I am, 45 years later, again, connecting the dots on Sunday morning. That's what we've entitled our current series of Bible studies. We're putting the Bible together. We're connecting the dots, and we're looking at the big picture of God's Word. You know, God forbid that you or I are ever bored with the Bible. It's an exciting story filled with life-changing truths. But to appreciate its message, it helps to be able to connect the dots. And one way to put the Bible together is to focus on the seven major covenants that God has made with man. This is what we've been discussing over the last seven weeks. The Edenic Covenant, and the Adamic Covenant, and the Noahic Covenant, and then the Abrahamic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and then finally, the New Covenant. This morning is our last installment in the series. We're going to look at the New Covenant and the church. Remember, though, God wants a relationship with mankind, but not just any type of relationship. God has terms and expectations for the relationship that He desires, and His covenants define those terms. You see, real fellowship doesn't just happen. It's not meaningful or sustainable without a covenant. A real relationship is governed and guided by an agreed-upon understanding between both parties. Take two single people. Say they decide to forego marriage and just shack up. Hey, they like each other. It's convenient, even cheaper, and they want to have sex. Who needs the promises and the expectations and the stipulations and the provisos that come with marriage? And all might go well for a while. But, but what if the boy brings home another girl? 
Or maybe she wants a break. Or either of them invite another friend to move in. You see, without a covenant, who defines the relationship? It's all up in the air. That's why a non-covenantal arrangement lacks the value and the stability to survive. God says it best. In Amos 3, verse 3, God asks, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Well, the obvious answer is no. Lasting relationships are based on covenants. And the same is true in our relationship with God. Amazingly, God wants relationship with man. And he sets out the terms. Understand, God doesn't negotiate here. I mean, you don't sit down and work out a covenant that's convenient for you and now works for him. God never haggles or brokers deals. His covenants are always take it or leave it propositions. You either play by God's rules or you can't join God's team. <laughs> That's why it grieves me whenever I hear people say foolish things like, Oh, me and the man upstairs, man, we're tight. Or somebody says, Oh, I'm cool with God. We got us an understanding. Or, Oh, I've worked out my own relationship with God. Hey, you say that and you're just revealing your ignorance. God doesn't go around striking up individual deals with just anybody. Seven times in human history, God laid out covenants with mankind. And they were important enough to be recorded in Scripture. These covenants are what the Bible is all about. God establishes the terms and the conditions by which He plans to restore and redeem a fallen world. You know, it's a tribute to God's amazing grace that whenever man has rebelled, God has responded with a covenant. When the first man, Adam, sinned, God didn't just shrug his shoulders and say, boys will be boys. Oh no, something had to be done. There was a proper way to cover man's sin and shame. God used skins to clothe the man and the woman. He sacrificed an animal. It was a necessity. According to the Edenic covenant, the wages of sin was death. Thus, God's covenant had to be satisfied for mankind to resume a relationship with His Creator. When the human race became so polluted that God had to purge the earth with a flood, He started over with an undefiled family. He made a covenant with Noah. When Noah's descendants disobeyed God and launched that coup d'etat at the Tower of Babel, God busted up the party, and he started over with another covenant. Rather than work with mankind as a whole, he chose one family, and he made a covenant with Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Israel. He promised Abraham a land, a nation, and an heir who would bless the world. After the nation of Israel exited Egypt, God prepared his people for the promised land, he set them apart from other nations by giving a covenant, another covenant, to Moses. God even promised Israel an eternal kingdom and an eternal king. God made a covenant with David that his heir would sit on the throne of Israel forever. He would rule the world. He would live eternally. This king was known as the Messiah. But when the Babylonians conquered the Jewish kingdom and took the nation to Babylon, a chill settled over the most knowledgeable rabbis. 
For now, all of a sudden, a son of David no longer ruled in Israel. Had God's covenants failed? Nearly 2,000 years earlier, God had called Abraham out of Babel, the land of idols. But now, God's people were back in Babylon. Tragically, they had come full circle. Psalm 137 was written in tears by one of these exiled Jews. He writes, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows. For those who carried us away captive asked us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. The Jews long to return home to Israel. And just like the gracious God that He is, Almighty God responded to His people's longing with a covenant. Right there in their darkest hour, he shone the brightest light. Jeremiah in Israel, Ezekiel in Babylon, they announced a new covenant that God would make with his people. It too included three promises. Israel would be regathered back to their land. Spiritual life would be reborn or regenerated in their hearts. And a king would come who would reestablish the throne of David and the kingdom of Israel. And God sent His only Son, Jesus, to ratify this covenant. All God's covenants were signed with blood, and the new covenant was no different. The night before He was crucified, Jesus took that Passover cup, and He redefined its meaning. The Lamb of God said these words, This is my blood in the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Jesus had come to activate that new covenant. At the time of Jesus, the Jews had been regathered. With His death on the cross and its payment for sin, it was now possible for sinful men to be forgiven and be given a new life, a new start and a new heart. And as we discussed last time, if the Jews had received the gospel and Jesus as their Messiah... There is evidence, at least from Peter's preaching, that Jesus would have returned in the very first century to establish the throne of David and God's kingdom on the earth. But they didn't. And He hasn't. And for the last 2,000 years, God's new covenant has been on pause. He offered His kingdom to the Jews, but they refused and chose to remain under the blessings and for the most part the curses of the Mosaic Covenant, and it was a tragic mistake. Over the centuries, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 have played out upon the Jewish people over and over again. Shortly after their rejection of their Messiah in 70 AD, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. They burned the temple to the ground. Thousands of Jews were crucified or sold into slavery, just as Deuteronomy had predicted. The Romans even leveled the Temple Mount and built a temple to their own idolatrous god, Jupiter. They even renamed Jerusalem Ilia Capitolina after the Emperor Hadrian's family. Eventually, Rome barred the Jews from their own holy city. The nation was no more, and the Jews were a scattered people. And if you had just been following the Old Testament storyline... 
you would have cried. You would have just sat down and cried. The new covenant was the last of God's covenants. And his plan ends in his people's failure? How sad is that? But, oh, but God had a secret. He kept back vital information from the Jewish prophets. God had a secret. God can do that. Did you know that? God can have secrets. God is God. He can do anything he wants. God had a secret. Did you know God has secrets? I love Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. You know, put those two thoughts together and you get the idea that God has secrets, but he really likes to reveal them to us. He gets a charge out of telling us his secrets. Got to tell you a story. It was first reported in the Boston Globe, and the events occurred in June of 1990. A young lady from Boston had grown up in a poor family. In fact, she had spent some time in the city's homeless shelters. Yet through hard work and a successful business, she had risen out of her squalor. Her life seemed perfect. She met a man, and they decided to get married. In preparation for the reception, she contracted the downtown Hyatt, ordered a meal with all the trimmings, expensive centerpieces, formal waiters. She even hired an orchestra for entertainment. The price tag for the big shindig was $13,000. Remember, this was 1990. But here's where the plot thickens. A couple of days before the wedding, the groom got cold feet. He didn't know if he was ready for a big commitment like marriage. And after an awkward conversation, he backed out. The spurned bride immediately went to the Hyatt for a refund, but to no avail. She couldn't get out of her contract. She had two options. Cancel and forfeit 90% of her money, or she could go through with the party. Though at first it seemed crazy, the more the jilted bride thought of the idea of going through with the party, the more she liked it. Here's what she did. <laughs> first, she changed the night's menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. Then she sent invitations to Boston's homeless shelters and rescue missions. And that night, Hyatt waiters dressed up in tuxedos served delicious hors d'oeuvres to bag ladies and to panhandlers. People who normally ate half-gnawed pizza feasted on chicken cordon bleu Vagrants sipped champagne. Street people ate chocolate wedding cake. They all danced to big band melodies throughout the night. Hey, all I can say to that is, surprise! That jilted Bostonian bride did the unthinkable. Rather than let a good party go to waste, she invited people who would appreciate the blessing. She hosted a feast and invited strangers. And this is the secret that God had kept from Israel. Here's where we need to read our text this morning. Did I tell you to turn there? Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verses 12 and 13 is addressed to Gentiles. And you know who Gentiles are. That's everybody who's not a Jew. Paul writes to Gentiles and he says this. That at that time... 
you, you Gentiles, were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. All these covenants we've been studying, they were strangers of these covenants, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Like that jilted bride, God had been jilted by his people Israel. They had refused to believe in Jesus, and he made an unprecedented move. No one expected what God did. God had this perfectly good covenant paid for by the blood of Jesus. Why let it go to waste? So God sent shockwaves through the halls of heaven. He took the promises and the covenants intended specifically for the children of Abraham and he offered them to every man, to us Gentiles, even to strangers, those who were strangers to the covenants of God. Understand, this was like a dog breeder who specializes in properly pedigreed pups. Suddenly, he opens up his kennel to mutts and mongrels. God took the status he had reserved for his special people, Israel, his chosen people, and he offered it to any human being with a pulse. Gentiles were offered God's covenants. Here is the secret that God refused to reveal to the Old Testament prophets. Israel would reject their Messiah, but God would not be without a people. He would make a new people group out of both Jews and Gentiles. Anyone who believed in his son Jesus would be invited to the party. You remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 14? A man hosted a great supper. And the people that he invited, they all had excuses why they couldn't come. And so he told his servants to go out and to invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. And yet despite their efforts, there was still room for more. And so he sent his servants into the highways and the hedges to recruit anybody and everybody for his party. You see, the host had only one priority, and that was a full house. And here's the meaning of the parable. God will fill up his kingdom with misfits and nobodies, not just blue bloods. In Christ, God opens the door to all men, even to you and even to me. In Matthew 21, Jesus says it again. A landowner, he plants this vineyard and he leases it to a crew who didn't like paying rent. I mean, all they wanted to do was just wine. The crew that kept the vineyard. All they wanted to do was just wine. Oh my. So he sent his servants to collect rent. And they tried to collect the rent from this malicious bunch. Instead, they beat them and they killed them and they stoned them. That's no way to treat a friendly rent collector. And so the landowner, he sent his own boy. He figured, they'll respect my son. But the men saw it as a chance to kill his heir and steal the owner's estate. It's funny, later in that same chapter, Matthew 21, we're told, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Duh. Of course he was. The Jews were enjoying new covenant blessings without bearing new covenant fruit. You see, they occupied the land. And they were looking forward to the kingdom. 
but they were rejecting the life of the Spirit, the second part of the new covenant. They killed his son and they practiced on his prophets and the vine dressers of Judaism were destined for judgment. Jesus delivers the moral of the story when he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And this is what Paul in Ephesians refers to as a mystery. In chapter 3, verse 4, he speaks of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. God keeps secrets. Paul calls them mysteries. And his biggest mystery was the church. Oh, I like a little mystery in my life. How about you? A predictable life is a boring life. I love a few surprises along the way. You know, Kathy and I, we've been married for 31 years. But she still surprises me. That woman can supply some mystery into your life. But it's the mystery that keeps me intrigued and it keeps me enchanted and it keeps me coming back. Hey, don't you like it when you can keep a secret? You can hide a secret and then suddenly you get to spring it on someone special? Don't you like that? It's a thrill. It stirs up love and passion. Well, the church is the mystery of the new covenant. All along, God knew what he would do, but he kept it a secret so that he could spring it on you. Don't ever think of the church as God's plan B. Ah, since the Jews wouldn't dance, God was stuck with the Gentiles as a partner. Granted, that's how it seems. But plenty of passages state that it was always God's will to include the Gentiles in the new covenant. He just kept it a secret. It was a mystery. I love how 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 addresses the church, both Jews and Gentiles. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. This is how God spoke of Israel under the Mosaic covenant. He made the Jewish people remember a nation of priests, a holy nation dedicated and set apart to him. You remember at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages and He scattered the Gentile nations. That's when He turned His attention to one family, the Jews. But Abraham's family rejected salvation. The salvation God offered under the new covenant. And so God turned His attention back to the rest of humanity. And on the day of Pentecost, God started a new work among the nations of the world. He reversed what he did at the Tower of Babel. Rather than confuse the languages, God gave the church the gift of tongues to speak in other languages the praises of God. It unified the crowd. In a supernatural way, God ended the language barrier that had kept men segregated. The nations that God drove apart at Babel were reunited in Christ at Pentecost. You see, God was forming a new people group on the earth. As 1 Peter 2 verse 10 puts it, those who once were not a people, that's you and me, are now the people of God. That's you and me if we trust in Jesus. 
Understand what God is doing in the church. He is creating a whole new species of human being. Before this mystery was revealed, there were only two kinds of humanity on the planet, Jews and Gentiles. But that changed with the church. When God invited Gentiles to take part in the new covenant, he was creating out of both Jews and Gentiles a new distinction. Listen to how our text, Ephesians 2 verse 15 puts it. He says, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Today, there's no longer just Jews or Gentiles. There's no longer just two people groups in the world. There's a third breed called Christian. In Christ, a new covenant community has been born. You see, for a time, the church has replaced Israel as God's focal point on the earth. Not forever, not hardly. The restoration of all things is a promise that God has made to Israel. God will again return his attention to the children of Abraham. God's ultimate rule on earth will be from the throne of David in the land of Israel. But according to Romans 11, for the moment, Israel is the branch that has been cut off of the vine. And the church, a new group, has been grafted in its place. Remember under the old covenant, where did Israel come to worship God? They came to the temple. The very center of Judaism. It was God's designated meeting place. In fact, it was a sin to sacrifice on any other altar. You remember part of the Davidic covenant was that God, was that David's son would build God a temple. And when Solomon got his certificate of occupancy, God dedicated that new temple. He did it with some divine fireworks. You remember fire fell from heaven and consumed the meat. It was a new day for Israel. But again, God repeated the miracle at Pentecost. For when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church in Acts chapter 2, we're told that flickers of fire fell on the heads of the disciples. Why? Because God was dedicating a new temple in the same way he had dedicated Solomon's temple. The fire of the Holy Spirit this time had fallen on the sacrifice, but it was no longer dead meat. The sacrifice this time was alive and kicking. Apparently, God prefers his sacrifices rare. He likes living sacrifices. He wants you and me to give our lives to him. He wants us to be totally dedicated to his will and purposes. But here's the point. Today, the church is the temple of God. We're the place now where men come to worship God. A house of prayer for all nations. As the temple was under the Mosaic Covenant, today the church is a reflection of God's glory. 1 Peter 2 refers, Peter refers to believers as living stones. We're all stacked up on Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Let me help you understand what it means to be a new covenant believer. How this third breed differs from the former two, both Jews and Gentiles. Think of it this way. The Gentiles were unrighteous. Ephesians 2 verse 1 describes their nature as dead in trespasses and sin. And you know what the Greek word for dead there means, don't you? It means dead. Dead is dead. There's no degrees to death. You can't be partially dead. You're either dead or you're not. 
And the Gentiles, they were hostile to God. They were children of wrath. They were dead in their sin. But the Jews weren't any better. They were self-righteous. And this was God's biggest beef with the Jews. Oh, he was kind. Jesus was kind and merciful to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But he was intolerant of the self-righteous Jews who thought they knew it all and had it all together. He was intolerant to the legalistic, hypocritical, prejudicial, judgmental people that the, Pharisee, that the Jews called Pharisees. In fact, Jesus called them brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, sons of hell. The Gentiles were unrighteous. The Jews were no better. They were just self-righteous. But the new covenant refers to the Christian as something marvelous. As the righteousness of God. That is absolutely amazing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 puts it. For God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ we receive, then we become the righteousness of God. Now recall the middle promise of the new covenant, regeneration. In John 3, Jesus explained it to Nicodemus as being born all over again. Being born again. It's a spiritual awakening that occurs in our hearts. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, God explains what he'll do. He says, I will write my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now you fail to understand these promises and you'll live well below your privileges as a Christian. Under the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, God wrote His law on stone tablets. Moses brought them down from the mountain. The Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. But under the New Covenant, God does an amazing thing. He writes His will into our hearts. Before I came to Jesus, my instinct was to resist God and do my own thing. Most times, my own thing was a bad thing. On occasion, my own thing was a good thing. But it was always my thing. I mean, I was selfish to the core. But when I embraced Jesus, a change took place inside of me. He etched into my heart a love for Him and a love for others. I now had a desire to obey. That spirit of defiance had been replaced by a spirit of compliance. Now that doesn't mean I never sinned. I still slip up and sin, but I hate it when I do. Sin is no fun anymore. Once I was at home with my sin, now when I participate, it feels out of character. It's not me. I hate it. My deepest desire is not to please God. You could say it like this. Before I knew Jesus, on occasion, I'd slip up and do a good deed. Every now and then. God's desires and my desires might accidentally cross paths but my inner compass pointed away from God. But now everything has flip-flopped. On occasion, I'll slip up and sin, but God's desires and my desires remain in sync. I don't always succeed, but my heart's desire is to please God. Now that compass points Godward. You see, there's a Christian bumper sticker that's actually spreading some bad theology. I saw it the other day, and I don't like it. It reads, 
Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Now, I understand the basic sentiment, and and I agree with the basic sentiment. It's trying to say that what sets Christians apart is not that we live perfect lives. It's that we've thrown ourselves on the mercies of God, and we received His forgiveness. I agree with that. But implied in that statement is that when a person becomes a Christian, all that really changes about them is their rap sheet. I mean, their sins get expunged, but nothing really happens inside of them. Nothing really happens to them in their nature. And that couldn't be more false. You see, the new covenant highlights a fundamental transformation. A metamorphosis occurs inside the Christian. An ugly, earthbound caterpillar suddenly gets wings. God turns us into butterflies, spiritually speaking. He gives us power to soar above our sin and treat others in a new way. The new covenant changes our heart's desire. We get a new set of wants. The law of Moses forbids sin, but under the new covenant, I no longer want to sin. The Mosaic covenant worked like the speed limit. God posted His commandments beside the road of life. You shall not. But under the new covenant, God puts us in intimate contact with God. He puts His Spirit in us. Now, I've got a question for you. What's more likely to keep you from driving too fast? A law on the book somewhere? Or a cop parked at the intersection? (laughs) Obviously, that cop parked on the street has a far greater impact than the law on some books. And this is the difference between the new covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Under the old covenant, we were governed by laws and rules. Under the new covenant, we are connected to God's Spirit and we are led by Him. Moses was like the coach who put his players through the drills and stressed execution and even yanked them from the game at their first mistake. But Jesus is a player coach. He sends His Spirit to join us and play with us fall behind, and the Spirit works even harder. He takes up the slack, and it's His effort inside of me that motivates me to want to play harder too. 2 Corinthians 3 compares the covenant written on stone with the covenant written on human hearts. You know, whenever you put a thought down in print, you run the risk of it being misinterpreted or misunderstood. And that's what happened to God's law. The Jews interpreted it in a stilted, wooden legalistic manner. This is why Paul said, the letter kills. It's the Spirit that gives life. You see, God embeds His will into our spiritual DNA. The new covenant is not about rules. It's about following a person. 2 Corinthians 3 is a tremendous chapter. You should read it when you get home this afternoon. It compares the glory of the old covenant, a fleeting and fading glory, with the glory of the new covenant, a transforming glory. You know, when Moses received the law, his face glowed with the glory of God. I like to call it the divine shine, the mo glow. And he had to cover his face and shield it from the people. The glory of God was off limits to anyone but Moses. Well, in contrast, Paul says of the new covenant, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Under the new covenant, we're all invited to behold God's glory. As Paul puts it, we all come with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. On the cross, Jesus purchased an unlimited data plan for everyone who believes in Him. 
We get unrestricted access. God's presence is always online in our hearts. And I love verse 18. Paul encourages us. He says, when we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Understand the new covenant, how we get more holy, how we become like Jesus. How do we reflect God's glory? It's very simple. It's by spending time with Him. It's the mirror effect. The more you look at Jesus, the more you gaze at Him, the more you will pick up His reflection. That's how we're transformed. Here's the simple point I'm making this morning. The Gentiles have been made part of the new covenant, not the old covenant God made with Moses. Hebrews 7 verse 22 tells us, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. The term surety is an older word. It means a down payment or a guarantee. The covenant that Jesus offers is better than the old covenant. It cannot fail because it rests on His work, not mine. Jesus died for sins once and for all. His work needs no augmentation. It needs only to be trusted. Recall the Savior's final words on the cross. It is finished. Reminds me of a joke. See Moses and Jesus there, sitting around in heaven. They're reminiscing about their time on earth and the various miracles they both performed. Moses wonders if he still has it. They both decide to revisit earth and to renew some old times. Moses is by the Red Sea. He turns to Jesus and he says, well, here's hoping. So he raises his rod and sure enough, the sea splits in two just like before. Moses says, wow, it's nice to know you still got it. Next, they're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says to Moses, well, it's my turn now. It's been years since I've walked on water. Let's see if I can still do this. And Jesus strides off the shore and he walks several hundred yards out into the water. He turns around, he gives Moses this big grin. He comments how good it feels to be back on top of the water. But then as he tries to walk back, there's a problem. He takes a few steps and and he sinks up to his ankles. And then he walks a few more yards and he's trudging in water up to his knees. Finally, Jesus sinks and he has to swim to shore. And Jesus can't figure out what went wrong. That's when Moses, he smiles and he points to his feet and he tells him, Lord, you forgot about those holes. And it's not really a joke. For the difference between Moses and Jesus are those holes. Not the miracles. It's the mercy. Jesus, not Moses, loves you enough to die in your place. He's the guarantee of a covenant with no holes. A far better covenant. And here's the big question. Are you living under the old covenant or under the new covenant? You see, I know believers in Jesus who don't understand how real righteousness works. It's not a list of do's and don'ts that you try to keep in your own efforts. It's not your elbow grease. Rather, we trust God and we spend time with Jesus and in return, He works in us. He writes it on our hearts. He changes us from inside out. Too many Christians live as if they're under the old covenant. They live from the outside in, 
obeying the do's and don'ts, trying to grind it out on their own. They rely on their own willpower and never experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't be unrighteous. Don't be self-righteous. Receive God's righteousness by faith. In Romans 11, verse 25, we find another place where Paul writes of the mystery of the church. But he takes it one step further. He tells us why this all has happened. He says in verse 11 that salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. See, this is God's plan of evangelism. Often we think of evangelism as an altar call or maybe as passing out a track, but it's far more comprehensive. For God wants the church to be a witness of what life will be like in God's future kingdom. Our fellowship with God and with each other should be so rich, so full of grace and truth, that it makes the Jews and the world around us jealous of our faith and the riches we have in Christ. Understand, my friend, this is the power of the church. Our great influence in the world today is not in our ability to mobilize politically or to pool our resources financially. In fact, there have even been times when, in church history when the institutional church thought it had a military mission. Armies formed under the banner of the cross. No, we need to see the new covenant church through God's eyes. We are a temporary home for kingdom citizens. The kingdom of God won't come physically until Israel has been regathered and regenerated. Then Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom. You see, right now, we're living pre-kingdom. We're living in the meantime, you might say. We're a stopgap measure. We are God's unfolded mystery. And our purpose is to be living out the values of the future kingdom today in our relationships with one another. We are an advertisement for God's future kingdom. We're an outpost of heaven behind enemy lines. It might seem ironic at first that the last of God's covenants is called the new covenant. But that's not a surprise, for God is a God of newness. God wants to make all things new. Your life, your marriage, your work, your mind, your relationships. He can give you a new start. Oh, He can give you a new heart. Bow your life to Messiah, King Jesus today. Trust His Spirit to etch God's will upon your heart. And watch the Father pour out all of the riches of Christ upon you. God, thank you for today. For your love for us. For today's Bible study. And for the marvelous covenants you've made with man. Not the least of which is this glorious new covenant. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives, Lord. Help us to seek Jesus and what He can do in our lives. Lord, I pray for us all this morning. For at times we all struggle to believe. We struggle that it can happen for me. That it can happen in my life and in my heart. But forgive us, Lord, for underestimating the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that framed the heavens, the power that called things that aren't into being, the power that said, let there be light, and boom, there was light. 
That same power is available to us today. The power that took every sin that had ever been committed by every person in every part of the globe, in every seedy place, in every seedy thing. The power that took all of that sin upon its shoulders, paid its penalty, and released victory out of defeat. Help us to trust in that power today. In the power of the risen Christ and in His work in our lives. We'll be better for it. Our world will be a better place. Our families will be better places. We pray for it today, Lord, for that power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.